we're beginning a new series today that I'm calling Different. It's a description of how we as people who have surrendered our lives to Jesus and our kingdom people are supposed to be. We're supposed to be different kinds of people. We're supposed to look different than the the world around us, not in in a bad way, but in a good way. There's supposed to be something about the way we live life that causes people around us to sit up and take note. The Apostle Peter uh, says in 1 Peter 3.15, says it like this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And the assumption here that Peter has is that as followers of Jesus, our lives are going to beg the question, Why do you have the hope that you do? I mean, why are you the way that you are? And sadly, so often the lives of Christians have become so indistinguishable from everyone else's life that there's no question to even be asked. We're not even really any more likely to have margin in our lives than the rest of society. We spend money just as frivolously as the rest of the world. We're just as busy and frantic as the rest of the world, although we kind of pass it off as saying, well, we're busy with the Lord's work. We tend to display our anxiety in just the same way as the rest of the world. And what's missing in the world is the credible witness of lives that testify to the truth that the kingdom of God is at hand. We're missing lives that are lived in such a way that demonstrate that King Jesus truly is in charge. I mean. Think about your own life for a minute. When was the last time somebody looked at your life with intrigue about the possibility that they too could live a better life like you? Chances are good this question causes a little bit of a reaction in some of you. Maybe it causes shame or unease or anger or resentment, resignation or sadness. Maybe you get defensive at the possibility that I would be suggesting that your life doesn't demonstrate the kingdom. Some of you are likely even thinking about checking out right now, and let me just say, don't do it. Don't do it. It will get better from here, I promise. If you had asked me a year ago what I thought was the biggest hindrance to living a kingdom life that was compelling to the world around us, I probably would have fumbled around and struggled to give you a few suggestions. You know, maybe we just don't feel like we know enough to to comfortably share our faith. Maybe we are afraid that we won't have enough to offer those who are far from Jesus. Or maybe we're not even really sure we want people to meet Jesus. There's a scary thought. Maybe we're afraid that uh, what we have really isn't that much better than what they have. Or maybe we're afraid that they, they will find out that we don't live up to the ideals that we cling to. But in the past year... I've become increasingly aware that there are really only two things necessary for what Peter says is supposed to naturally happen with Christians. This idea that people would ask what kind of hope we have. Number one is that we live really deep lives with Jesus. And number two, that we live really deep lives with those around us. I mean, that's really it. It's that simple. We will live a really deep life with Jesus and we live a really deep life with those around us. 
Over the past year, I've intentionally pursued health in two areas that I've neglected for a long time. This may come as a shock, but the first was I pursued my own spiritual health in a deeper way. As pastors and then those of you who have been in, in ministry can attest to, it's, it's very easy to, to care for and to, to help people with their own spiritual health while neglecting your own spiritual health. It's just super easy to do, and you get busy doing a lot of things. And so I pursued my own spiritual health, which included getting a spiritual director who's someone who helps me discover and respond to where God is at work in my life. So that was the first thing. I pursued my own spiritual health. But the second thing I did was I pursued my own emotional and mental health in a deeper way, which came, as I've, I've shared with a number of you, as I engaged in the faith walking process. And here's what I discovered. Spiritual health and emotional health are deeply interconnected, deeply. So much are they interconnected that without becoming more emotionally healthy, you will be capped at how spiritually healthy you can be. Some of you will know the name Pete Scazzaro as a pastor in New York. He planted a church uh, and, and he wrote this book uh, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And what Pete Scazzaro says is, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. What he's saying is that it's easy to learn a whole bunch of things about God. You can read the Bible cover to cover. You can know all the tips, all the tricks, all the techniques. But if you don't grow emotionally, your spiritual growth will be stunted. And I'm sure we've met people like this, right? They know the Bible inside and out, but kindness is lacking. Maybe we are those people sometimes. And here's what I've seen since beginning a year ago. I've been, here's a confession, right? I've been emotionally immature for a while. But as, as it turns out, I'm not alone. Much of the American church is emotionally immature. And really, much of America is emotionally immature. And this is not just my opinion, but psychiatrists for at least the last 70 years have been saying, that America is become, becoming more and more emotionally immature. So in this series, what I want to do is look at how we can grow more emotionally mature in order to be more spiritually mature. Today, I want to take a look at anxiety. And so the title of this message is, I'm not anxious, you're anxious. Isn't that fun? That's, it's fun for me. And I look at your faces and there's like some eye rolls. Everybody's like, uh, he did that thing that he does all the time. Uh, anxiety is often misunderstood. I'll just move right on from there. Anxiety is often misunderstood. We tend to label people as anxious and others as not anxious. And maybe we do this because it's easy to see the effects of anxiety in some people and not in others. I would have said that I was not an anxious person. And I would imagine many of you would say that you're not anxious people either. But some of you would describe yourselves as extremely anxious. Here's the deal. All of us experience anxiety. Anxiety is what happens when your body gears up to deal with a stressor. I mean, let, let's consider this example. You're just driving along. You're minding your own business. And you see a ball bouncing into the street. And a kid chasing that ball, not paying any attention right in front of you. And what happens right now inside of you is anxiety hits you, your body immediately reacts without you having to think about it. And you slam on the brakes to stop. You didn't pause, 
to think through all the possible reactions. You didn't pause to think, well, which one of these would be the most appropriate? Because if you did, you would hit the kid. You just reacted. And you did so because anxiety created a stress response inside you and a reaction took place. This is called acute anxiety. And something happens that requires an immediate response without thinking. And in situations like this, anxiety helps you. It really, really does. But there's another type of anxiety called chronic anxiety. Inside your body, it's the same. Chronic and acute anxiety are the same inside your body. It's the same reaction. But in the case of chronic anxiety, there's not an actual defined external threat. You're not trying to avoid anything. It's the anxiety that's just humming along in the back of your brain, in the background of your life, often without you ever even noticing until it shows up in a reactive response. The threat that your body is reacting to is not from a real external problem, though. It comes from not getting what you think you need. Let me give you an example, a couple of examples. You're having a conversation with your boss, and they praise one of your coworkers' performance on a project that you both worked on. You're like everyone else, that you have a core longing to have worth and value, but your boss didn't say anything about your performance on the project. And so inside you begin to feel this anxious feeling because your need to be validated seems to be going unmet. All these internal feelings begin to boil. Your mind begins to race. You start thinking crazy things like, Does my, did my boss say I didn't do a good job? Maybe my boss doesn't think I'm a good employee. Or does my boss even know what I did on the project? I wondered for a while if my boss didn't like me. You know, he didn't sit next to me at the, the company picnic and uh, he really didn't say a whole lot to me that one day when I came into the office. Maybe he doesn't like me. And just like a pot that boils over, eventually this anxiety boils over and out of your mouth comes an anxious response like, well, my coworker didn't really do that much. Or I really did most of the work. Can you see that? Have you seen that before? Have you seen that in yourself? You're a follower of Jesus. You know that your worth and value are set by the creator of the universe before you were ever born. They're not things that are going to change. God has set a supreme value on your life. And yet, here you are reacting in a way that you would tell other people not to. Or maybe here's another example. You really, really, really believe this might get a little, this is, okay, let me, let me put a pause, put a stop for, for a second. I'm making no political statements right now whatsoever. Okay. With that said, I mean, I'm trying to just ease your anxiety for a second. You really believe in your political candidate. You really believe in what they say they will do and what they stand for. And so you do what you can to help your candidate get elected including posting their stuff all over social media. You, like everyone else, have this deep core longing to have a meaningful purpose. And at some level, you're fulfilling this purpose by sharing these things that your candidate's going to do. Someone comments on your post about how your candidate is wrong on a particular issue. And when you read the comment, your insides begin to boil. Do they even know the facts? Are they saying my candidate is a terrible person? Are they saying I'm a terrible person? I think that's what they're saying. I think they're saying I'm a terrible person. I'll bet they are. You know what? I've seen their stuff on social media. They're just so extreme. They're so left-wing. They're so right-wing. They're so liberal. They're so conservative. 
And just like the boiling pot, you get to typing something intentionally pointed about how extreme they are and how deluded they are and how stupid they are. You're a follower of Jesus. You know that your meaning and purpose are given by God, your worth and value are secure because they're set by God, and yet here you are, reacting in a way you would tell people not to. I mean, maybe you can relate to one of these examples, or maybe it shows up for you in a different form, but we all have some sort of and some level of chronic anxiety in our lives. What's happening? Your body is responding with a stress response to anxiety. Your body bypasses rational thought and just reacts to the threat, just like in the acute anxiety example, except this time there's no real external threat. So what if the person thinks that your political candidate is stupid? I mean, really. So what if the, your coworker gets more praise than you do, but you respond out of your anxiety? It's the same reason that you hear about good Christian people hitting people, even though we're supposed to be people who turn the other cheek. What happens? The emotional anxiety just ratchets up until the point where we react instead of thinking. We know we shouldn't punch people, and yet you hear about it. Maybe you're somebody that does it, or at least thinks about it several times a day. Or, or, or maybe, or why is it that Christian parents who, who say you shouldn't yell at your kids find themselves yelling at their kids because they reach this point where the anxiety boils up and out comes a reaction? I mean, we would say that Christians shouldn't gossip, but as soon as the meeting at work is over, we find ourselves having a separate meeting in the parking lot to talk about the meeting without the person there that we didn't want to talk about. The Bible says, warn a divisive person only twice and then have nothing to do with them. But over and over and over in churches all across this country, we see divisive people splitting churches. All of these things are a result of chronic anxiety. We find Christians doing things that they would say should not be done. And maybe you can relate. The Apostle Paul uh, was light years ahead of this modern-day psychiatry, this, these, these findings that we're finding about how people react. In chapter 7 of his letter to the Romans, I'll just read it. He says this, chapter 7, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but a sin living me that does it. That's a lot of use of the word do. Do, do, do. But Paul expresses here what so many of us who follow Jesus experience, right? Maybe if, if you look at your own life, this is what you experience. I want to do one thing. You know, when I'm in this space, I don't want to gossip. And yet when I find myself in the space again, what happens? I gossip again. You know, I really don't want to react that way whenever somebody pushes my buttons. And yet, I feel powerless to change it. I show up, they push my buttons, and I react. And even though I know it's not what I'm supposed to do, it feels like I can't change it. It feels like internally we're at war with ourselves. 
I remember after I gave my life to Jesus, I figured everything would instantly be different, that I would be a good person, but it wasn't too long, and probably this is your experience, it wasn't too long after I gave my life to Jesus, I discovered that I still had a lot of the same sin patterns. It felt like nothing had changed. What Paul says is that you are at war with the sinful nature in your flesh. This is the process the Bible calls sanctification. It's a big word that basically means being formed into the image of God we were created to be. The bad news is we will never be done with this battle until Jesus returns. The good news is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can become more and more like who you were created to be. I told you earlier that emotional health and spiritual health are intertwined. Here's how that happens. Chronic anxiety happens because you are trying to meet a legitimate need that God has built into you, but you're trying to meet it in an illegitimate way. You're trying to meet a God-given need in a way that you were not designed to meet it. So for example, you're created to receive love or validation, or acceptance, or worth, meaning, significance from God. But often, instead of seeking these things from God, we seek them out in other people or in things. And when we do that, what inevitably happens is that people really won't meet these needs. They weren't designed to completely meet your needs, which creates anxiety inside of us. And all this stuff can run really, really deep. The way you grow emotionally is to begin to get those needs met by God instead of the other ways you usually go about it. When that happens, you feel less and less pressure to get your needs met by those around you. You may be asking, well, how do I do that? You know, I've been doing this for years. I can see it so clearly in myself. This is where spiritual disciplines are extremely fruitful. Essentially, spiritual disciplines are ways of putting yourself in position for God to shape you, to change who you are. The default disciplines in the evangelical world, many of you are probably familiar with, have tended to be scripture reading and prayer, right? We have this, say, have your daily devotional time, and you're going to read the Bible and you're going to pray. And that's sort of like, is the one we hand to new believers. You say, well, you're a new Christian, you should get to know God's word, you should pray, and so here's the things that we hand you. You should read the Bible and pray. And there's nothing wrong with that. Those are not bad. You would do fine to start there. But here's the deal. The better way is to consider where you're weak and then address it with spiritual discipline. When you go to the gym, for those of, for those of you who go to the gym, when, when I, I used to go till they closed it for COVID, but hey. Uh, when you go to the gym, if your legs are strong, but your arms are weak, it's probably a good idea to skip the leg press and go for a good arm exercise. The same is true of spiritual disciplines. What needs do you tend to try to fill with other people instead of God? I mean, you have, you may have some idea of the very obvious ones in your life. If you're married or you have close relationships with people who will be honest with you, those people likely will be able to tell you some of the ways you show up trying to soothe your anxiety, as long as you're willing to listen without arguing. But here's the deal. 
in order to really come to awareness of much of your chronic anxiety, it's going to require you to slow down, spend some intentional time with God in silence and solitude, and take a curious posture about why you do what you do. And then as God reveals to you areas where you show up in a way other than how you were designed, you select a discipline that puts you in a position for God to shape you in that area. I mean, if you tend to be someone who fills your life with stuff to stay busy, perhaps you would do well to start with intentionally slowing down and scheduling a weekly day of Sabbath rest. Of course, it will feel hard. It's because you're not good at it yet. Resting doesn't come naturally if you never do it. Or, or maybe you're someone who has a hard time really being authentic. You have a hard time like being honest about who you are in every situation. So you live your life trying to be what everyone else wants you to be. Perhaps you would do well to start by being in community with people who make you feel safe enough to confess regularly when you're not being who you believe God has asked you to be. If you have a circle of friends where you can go and say, you know what, this is who I intended to be in that situation. But when I was there, you know, Bill, Steve, they always make me become this different person. And I feel like I have no control over that. And I end up acting like somebody I don't intend to act like. Regular confession to your friends who will pray for you and help you be accountable to being the person God created you to be. It's a good discipline. Me personally, uh, I, I tend to be someone who sees what's wrong with everything. If you haven't been close enough to me to see that, count yourself lucky. <laughs> um, but, but I tend to like be fairly critical of things. I see what's wrong. I see what's broken in something. And it really comes, as I've discovered, from a deeper need that God has revealed that I have for things to be perfect, which really stems from a desire to be validated. It's not that I don't see what's right. It's just not my natural reaction to point out what's right or good about things. And so one of the rhythms that we and our family have implemented in our house is that every night at dinner, we break out the champagne glasses and we go around the table and each person celebrates something from the day. Then we all toast to each one of those things, we, we celebrate. And this rhythm really doesn't take that long or cost much, but what it's doing in me is it's forming a muscle that is weak of seeing what is good and celebrating what God has done today. And what it's doing in my family, family is creating a habit of celebration that will shape my kids as they grow up. How do we become different kinds of people? In the face of anxiety, how do we become different kinds of people? How do we become people who are not just spiritually mature, but are emotionally mature? How do we become the kinds of people who can live deeply with God and live deeply with people we disagree with? By becoming aware of the places we're chronically anxious, identifying the ways we meet our needs instead of letting God meet them, and then engaging in habits that shape us to become different kinds of people who are less anxious. That's how we do it. That's our way forward. That's how we become the different kind of people that God created us to be.